0: Okay, well today we're looking at Matthew chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 13, but of course it was as usual, our usual tr- tr- uh, custom is to look over the last week's message to see how much you retained, that big brain that God's given you, and uh, to see how well you're using your mind to uh, keep these things in there, these important things about the Bible. Okay, last week we talked about the birth date of Jesus. Does anyone remember what A.D. stands for? Daniel? Year of our Lord. Okay. Does anyone know what the actual letters A.D. stand for? John? Yeah. Anodominium, which means the year of our Lord. Um, what is different about the Jewish leap year in comparison to the American leap year? How often do we have an American leap year? Every four years, right? And what, what do we add to our calendar? One day, One day February twenty ninth, right? Um, what did the Jews add? in pure. What'd you say? A whole month. And They do this every two or three years. In fact, to break it down, every nineteen years, they'll add it seven times. That's every two to three years there. What division of the priesthood was Zacharias, John the Baptist, farther from? You remember that. Elijah, how many divisions of priests were there altogether? twenty four that's correct, and how many times in a normal normal year did each division of the priests serve? 20. Well you did, sure one week at a time, but how many times in a whole year did they serve? It was three times that all the priests served together, and two times separately each division served at least, and that's during the regular year. So that's five times altogether, two times per each division. According to my calculations that I had during the message, uh, what Jewish festival was John the Baptist born around? Passover, that's right. And what was the interesting thing about John the Baptist being born around that festival? What did the Jewish people leave out? A cup, A cup for who? A cup of wine for Elijah. And what did John, who was John the Baptist? Was he Elijah? Elijah? Came in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's correct. Was Jesus born on December 25th? Yeah. Well, very good. What day was Jesus born? Yeah. We don't know for sure. That's right. That's right. According to my calculations during the Meshes, what special Jewish day could Jesus possibly have been born on? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's right. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but that's what calculations I came up with. And according to my calculations, what two months in the American calendar could Jesus have possibly been born in? September or October, that's right. Did any of the early church celebrate the birth of Jesus? Sure didn't. Is it wrong or sinful to celebrate the birth of Jesus? That's right. If we choose to celebrate Jesus' birthday, in what manner should we celebrate it? What did you say? Godly manner. On a godly manner. It's right. A manner that honors God. And we're not using it as an excuse to have some sinful day. Or just another day off of work. Or a day we can just get lots of presents and be covetous. And make a big list for this mythical figure called Santa Claus. Say, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. It's not what a Christmas is about. How much Jesus' birthday is supposed to be about? <laughs> now I'm going to go back a little further in my probing here. What group of people is this gospel written to? The Jews. Jews. Besides Matthew, what's another name for the person who wrote this gospel? Uh, Levi. Levi, That's right. Very good. should speak up next time. Whose genealogy is found in Matthew? Which one? Joseph, Joseph, that's right. So which one's found in Luke? That's right. Why couldn't Jesus be of the bloodline of the kings? Well, they were wicked, yeah, but there, he had lots of wicked people in his, blood, in his bloodline, and in his. Why couldn't Jesus be in the bloodline of the kings? Not the genealogy, the bloodline. His father was God, father was God okay, yeah, but he had a bloodline through Mary. She wasn't through the kings; she was back to David, but not through the kings. Why? Why couldn't he have a, being a bloodline of the kings who were. King, 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 king. Who was... No, that's not right. Because of the curse of Jeconiah. Remember that curse? God said of Jeconiah, someone who's from your bloodline will never sit on a throne again. And they got a liar if he was of the bloodline of the kings. And, and not only that, we, we have a conundrum now because you have to be someone who's of the house and lineage of David and you have to be in the genealogy of the kings well, you can't be of the bloodline of the kings and oh it narrows it down really close and folks in really close so Jesus becomes one of the only people qualified maybe even the only person qualified to be such because he was born of a virgin which means his, his father Joseph his legal father was not he didn't have any of his blood so he's qualified to be king what kind of relative was Elizabeth of Mary I don't know for sure that's right Okay, that'll be our review for now. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read through verse 23. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem, and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. All right, the first thing I want to discuss in relation to this passage is the doctrine of free will. And defining what I mean by free will, let me first tell you what free will is not. This is what free will is not. Free will is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. Free will is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. Um, If I wanted to fly to the moon do I have the free will, the ability to do that? I have the free will to want to do that. I have the free will to do it. Uh, I don't have the free will. I don't have free will to become God, because only God is God. Uh, I can't create something out of nothing. Only God can do that. I can't become a bird or a reptile. I can't do that. I can't time travel to see what the future is going to be like or go back in time to my past. I can't make more than twenty-four hours in a day so I get more things done. So free will is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. That is not free will. Free will is also not the ability to carry out every possible thing that I could carry out. Let's just give you an example. Let's say someone wants to kill me. Okay? They see me preaching in the open air. They don't like what I'm saying. Maybe I confront them. I rebuke them, and they want to kill me. Somehow they get my address. They decide they're going to come from Ohio State University. To come kill me. And i on the way down from Columbus, Ohio. They're driving down here. Now does God see all this happening? Right. Let's say God has a plan for me to live till I'm about 100 years old. I mean, that's God's plan for me. And nothing's going to stop that. God says, I'm going to make Kerrigan live to be 100 years old. I'll do whatever I can to get him to be there. And this man is coming to kill me. Now, I'm not 100 years old, am I? But will God's plan be thwarted? No, it will not, because this man's traveling down here, right? He's got free will. He has this murderous desire in his heart to kill me. He's driving down here, and God breaks down his engine. His car doesn't work anymore. He has a gun. He has a knife. He does not decided what to kill me with yet, and God makes him lose it along the way. And he's got no weapon to kill me with. He's got no way to get here. And worst case scenario, God could just kill the guy if he wanted to. That was God taking away the man's free will. Mm, he hasn't. So free will is not the ability to carry out every possible thing that I could carry out. It's not the ability to carry out every possible thing that I could carry out. Because this man has the ability to, to stab me with a knife or shoot me with a gun. He could do that. But God could stop him. And that's not taken away his free will. People wanted to kill Jesus. Way before the cross. They had the ability to carry out. They had stones in their hands. They had a cliff nearby. But did God let them carry it out? In the process, he didn't take away their free will. They still chose in their hearts to sin against God by having this murderous intention toward Jesus. So so far, free will is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. It's also not the ability to carry out every possible thing that I could carry out. Free will is not the ability to be left alone without any influence opposing what I really want to do. You know, when I lived as a sinner, I loved my sin. I wanted to sin. But just because I had free will to sin, to choose sin over over good, doesn't mean God's not going to influence me to do right. Free will is not the ability to just be left alone without any influence. Free will does not mean that you have no influence to the opposing thing that you want to do. If you want to sin, God's going to convict you, of righteous, convict you of sin, righteous in judgment. He's going to draw you near. He's going to command you to repent of your sin. He might send a gospel preacher to you to preach the truth to you. Maybe you're raised in a Christian family. He will influence you. At the same time, if you're a Christian who wants to use your free will rightly to not sin against God, it doesn't mean the devil's going to leave you alone either. So free will does not mean there will be no influence to the contrary. To what you don't to what you don't want to do. There's to be influence both directions. So free will does not mean a lack of influence upon you to do right and to do wrong. There'll be influence in both directions. Saul, when he was on his way to Damascus to keep he was destroying the Christian church, you think he was expecting or you think he wanted a bright light out of the sky with a voice speaking to him? Of course not. But God influenced him because God had a will for him and God was going to use his influence and exert it. Everyone's born with a conscience. Do you choose to be born with a conscience or not? God gives it to you. And your conscience will either accuse you or else excuse you depending on your conduct. You can sear your conscience corrupt defile it, but it's always going to be there, lingering in the background. You know, when truth is presented to your mind... Your mind, because it's been given to you by God, must agree with the truth. Does that mean you have to obey the truth? No. When God comes to a sinner and convicts them of their sin, tells them they're going to hell, either through a gospel preacher or just through the Holy Spirit convicting them, their mind's going to say, yes, that's right. Their conscience say, yes, that's right. But they're going to say, no, I'm not going to hell. They can say it all they want with their mouth. It doesn't change the facts. Their mind affirms it. So, free will does not mean you're left without any influence. Influence of the conscience, influence of the Holy Spirit, influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, influence of the Word of God and Christian preachers. Finally, free will does not mean that sin isn't destructive, addictive, or hard to overcome. You know, the longer you continue in a sin the harder it'll be to finally break from it the longer you continue in a certain sin or any sin sin in general the harder it will be to finally overcome it sin is just, i mean look at drugs i have seen who have been involved in drugs and they've broke free from it and gone back to it and broken free from it and gone back to it pornography traps a lot of men alcohol sexual addictions violence you, know, you run into a military guy. He starts to love violence. He wasn't that way in the beginning. He became that way over time. So let me just repeat the four things free will is not. Just to make sure you got it here. Free will is not the ability to do whatever I want to do. I can't fly the moon. I can't become God if I wanted to. I, I can't create something out of nothing. I can't become a bird or a reptile. Number two, free will is not the ability to carry out every possible thing that I could carry out. If someone wanted to kill me, but God didn't want him to, he could stop him. But if God didn't stop him, he would have the ability to carry it out. But in stopping him, God doesn't take away his free will. He still had a murderous intention towards me. Number three, free will is not the ability to be left alone without any influence. God will influence. The devil will influence. And if you're a sinner, you don't mind the influence of the devil. But you don't like the influence of God. That's why you want to sear and corrupt your conscience. and That's why we have this new atheist movement that's, uh, that's trying to evangelize people for atheism. They want to dull their conscience and if they can get as much people on their side as they can, it makes them feel better. Look, look how many people agree with me. That makes me feel like I'm right about it. Doesn't matter how many people agree with something, does that make it right by, by numbers? If the whole world believed 2 plus 2 equals 5, I wouldn't agree with them. And number four, free will does not mean that sin isn't destructive, addicting, or hard to overcome. In fact, the exact opposite it is. I told you what free will is not. Because many people misunderstand free will. Let me tell you what free will is. The ability given to us by God to choose between two opposite things. The ability given to us by God to choose between two opposite things. Now, free will doesn't mean that God had to give it to us. God is not, uh, you know, like He had to give it to us, like He was under some kind of compulsion to give us free will. God chose to give us free will. And it was a sovereign choice. It was his choice to do so. He didn't have to do it, but he did do it. Some people have a problem with sovereignty and free will. I don't. Can't God, out of his sovereignty, choose to give man free will? Or is God's sovereignty limited to not giving man free will? Of course not. God can choose to do whatever he wants. So the ability to choose between two opposite things, right and wrong, you can be taking a math test or an English test or some kind of, some kind of intellectual test and know the right answer, but still say, "No, I'm going to put this answer down anyway." Why you would do that blows my mind, but people do that sometimes. The ability to choose between right and wrong, moral evil and, and or, or moral good, the world and the word the flesh or the Holy Spirit God or demonic forces you have a choice to make and God leaves that choice up to you that doesn't mean he won't influence you doesn't mean you won't be influenced in the opposite direction but there's a choice for you to make and a choice lies with you that's the oh, remember we talked about responsibility what two words make up the one word responsibility ability and respond that's right and if I have no ability to respond to what God commands, then how am I ever responsible? But the whole foundation of responsibility is that I have the ability to respond properly, given to me by God. Now, what does this have to do with the Scripture we're looking at this morning? I never saw the words, free or will, inside the Scripture here. Uh, but what did Herod plan to do in his heart? He planned to kill Jesus. He planned to, to, did, and he planned to kill the young child, the King, the Messiah... Did God ordain that he had this evil thought in his heart? No. Did God stop him from trying to proceed with his plan? No. God didn't stop him from trying to proceed with his plan. He can't. he proceeded with his plan anyway. Did God stop him from choosing to sin in his heart? He had murderous intent in his heart. And, you know, where does all sin come from? Your heart. Sin comes from a wicked heart. So sin is not just action. Just because he didn't actually kill Jesus doesn't mean he didn't sin against wanting to kill Jesus. The Bible says hatred in your heart is murder at heart, right? All sin comes from the heart. And what if God even somehow stopped him from killing all the children, every single child that he ended up killing? What if God stopped him from killing all those children? Would that mean that Herod's free will was taken away by God? He still had murderous intent in his heart. Remember, free will is not the ability to carry out whatever you want to carry out, or could carry out. Herod has the authority to carry out the killing of his children. He has no right to, if you ask me, but he has the authority to as a king. And he obviously did it. But God still could have stopped him. Remember, free will is not the ability to carry out everything that could possibly carry it. Herod, Herod had the power and authority in his position to possibly kill Jesus. He had the natural ability to kill Jesus. Did God allow it, though? No, he didn't allow him to kill Jesus. He didn't allow him to kill Jesus. He stopped him. And in the process, once again, did God take away his free will? No, he sure didn't. Why do you think that God didn't allow Herod to kill Jesus? He had a plan for Jesus. And what was part of uh, God's plan for Jesus? Die for our sins. He was killed as a young child. Would he be able to die for our sins? Could we be forgiven of our sins? Could we be reconciled back to our relationship with God and have eternal life? No. So God, out of the greater good for all of his creation, God ordered Joseph, who is a just man, an obedient man, who God knew would obey him. He ordered him through a dream to take Jesus and Mary and escape to Egypt in the middle of the night. And what did Joseph do? He obeyed. A just man, he obeyed. He didn't. He didn't uh, sit around and, and wait for a little while and say goodbye to all his family members. He left. Just like Abraham left, he left. He obeyed God. And uh, as we talked about, I think a couple of weeks ago, possibly the way God provided for them financially there was through the wise men and the gifts they brought—very expensive gifts. Next, I'm going to look at is, uh, is at end of verse 15. Let's let's start at verse 14 and read through verse 15 again. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now there are different kinds of prophecies that we see in the Bible. Some are directly and solely about the future and about specific things and people in the future. These are direct prophecies. Okay? Uh, some examples you see of that is Matthew 1.23. Which says, Behold, the virgin shall uh, be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's from Isaiah 7.14. That's a direct prophecy about one person in the future, specifically about that person in that situation, Jesus and Mary. This scripture applies to no one else in history. It's quoted in Matthew 1.23. It's from Isaiah Isaiah 7.14. Then you have in Matthew 2.6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For right out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's from Micah five two, And that's a direct prophecy about one person, only in history, Jesus Christ. But now we come to this, this last sentence here at the end of verse 15. And uh, this is not the same kind of prophecy. This is what we would call a parallel prophecy or a type prophecy. A parallel type prophecy is something that is written in the Old Testament that is originally referring to something or someone in the Old Testament. It has an original meaning that did not apply to anything in the New Testament. Yet the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were led to apply these words from the Old Testament to a situation or a person in the New Testament. The two situations, the original one and the, the new one in the New Testament, or circumstances or people, parallel each other. What does it mean to be parallel? What's, what is, what is a, a line that's parallel to another line? What's the, what's the relation between the two? Anyone know? Yeah, keep going straight. The two lines... The, Parallel lines are lines that will never touch. So they run long, right alongside each other. Equal yeah, equal distance. They're running right alongside each other. There's similarities. That's what we see in, uh, in these prophecies that, that are being fulfilled in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's parallels. There's, they run side by side. There's a lot of similarities between these two situations. So take the situation with Jesus in verse 15 and compare it to the situation with Israel that Hosea is referring to in Hosea eleven one, which is quoted here. Both Israel and Jesus went to Egypt. Both did. When Israel originally went to Egypt, it went there as a refuge or to be saved from the food shortage. That was the original purpose for them going to. Later on they went to bondage, but the original reason was because for refuge and for salvation. Jesus went there as a refuge from the maniac king, Herod, who wanted to kill him. There's a parallel there. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, God is speaking to Moses and telling him what to say to Pharaoh. And this is what God says. And he shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. Israel is called God's son, whom God is calling out of Egypt. Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. And later on, God calls His only begotten son, there's a distinction there, of course, out of Egypt through a dream to Joseph. If Pharaoh doesn't let God's son Israel go, God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. When Jesus escapes, into Egypt, many sons are killed in Bethlehem. So you can see there's lots of parallels between these two stories, and this is why Matthew, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is relating them to by using a parallel prophecy here, and quoting from Hosea 11, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And God calling Israel his, quote-unquote, son, out of Egypt was a type of Jesus. His only begotten son being called out of Egypt in the future. And this is just another fact that should convince the, the people who are reading this, the Jews, who know the Old Testament and know these prophecies very well, it should convince them that Jesus is their King, their Messiah, who they should trust in. And you see these kind of prophecies all throughout the book of Matthew in the Scriptures. As I want to point out, in verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. Was Herod really deceived by the wise men? Did they did they intentionally deceive him? Weren't they originally intending to go back to Herod and tell him? Well, why didn't they go back? God told them not to. That's right. They're going to obey God over man. So there's no deception in the hearts of the wise men. They didn't sin, as Herod supposed. They were they were being right. They obeyed God over man. And the word translated deceived here in New King James could also be translated as mocked or make, to make fun of. And that's really the primary definition for this word, to mock or to make fun of. The secondary definition is deceived. And actually, in this situation, I think I would, pre- I would prefer either of those translations. Who do you think might have been actually mocking or making fun of Herod in this situation? Herod made a plan in his heart. God, that's right. Let's turn to Psalm chapter 2 for a second and read. I think it's very pertinent to what we're talking about here. It's a very good description. I know this is a prophecy about what's happening and what we're reading about, but it's very pertinent to what we're talking about here. It goes on very well. Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? Is that a vain thing to plot against God's will? It sure is. The kings of this earth, was Herod a king? Set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, what's the, what's the easiest way to break your bonds with somebody? You kill them. You don't want someone to have control over anymore? You just kill them. Break their bonds. I guess the anointed one, the Messiah. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision or in mockery. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and, dis- and distress them in His deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I have declare a decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And the ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Was Herod wise? He was a wicked fool. He wasn't wise. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And when it says kiss the son it doesn't mean a kiss like Judas gave. For you give your allegiance to him, your loyalty to him. He becomes your friend, and you are his friend. You're no longer his enemy. So I think Psalm 2 gives a good description of what Herod did here. And of course, he died eventually. We don't know how much longer after Jesus left. It's good either that he died, but he, he died. So Herod was mocked or held in derision by God. Because God thwarted his Wicked, evil plans. Now you see in verse 18, we see a voice was heard in Ramah lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. What kind of prophecy do you think this is? Is it that literal, direct one that only applies to one person in the future specifically, or do you think it's a parallel prophecy? Parallel. I mean, I have to I have to be that. I mean, was there a lady named Rachel who was literally weeping in Jesus' time? No, no, no. Even in the original prophecy found in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, there's no literal Rachel weeping. Rachel is is symbolic of all the women of Israel in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen who are weeping for their children as they perish. In the Babylonian takeover, and then the bring Israel into captivity into Babylon. That's the original context. So, this original prophecy you find in Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, quoted here in Matthew two eighteen, was the Israelite women weeping for their sons, for their young who were killed, who were taken to captivity to Babylon. That's the original context. Is that what it's referring to here? No, but it's a parallel, because what is happening now? Children are being slaughtered again by an enemy. This time it's the enemy is King Herod, not a foreign country. It's King Herod. Uh, even though King Herod is put in place by Rome, he's within their country. Now, something interesting fact about the situation is that Rachel, uh, who was Jacob's wife, who literally is the mother of some of Israel, okay um, she was buried in Bethlehem, where all these killings took place. She was buried there. You can find that fact in genesis thirty five nineteen so she was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, who were part of the twelve tribes of Israel, okay but she was the mother of some part of Israel. No, no, Rachel. No, it's a type then, too. Yeah, it's it's symbolic of the mothers of Israel who are weeping over their, their sons being killed and taken into captivity. So even then. So it doesn't show you that, that, that in the scriptures you see this this happen quite often. Like one example I can use is Romans 9, which says, Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. Now, is it talking about literally Jacob, literally Esau? Sure isn't. Isn't talking about... But the Calvinists will have you believe it is. And they'll say, look, God literally hated somebody. And wanted the worst for them. That's not what it's saying. Not what it's saying at all. And that's, and that's what you see. This is a, something to back up that. The Calvinists would say he's actually talking about those individual people. i say, no, this isn't talking about Rachel individually. Not in the original context or in this context. In Romans 9 where that's quoted, it's not talking about Jacob and Esau in the original context or in the context of Romans 9. All you to do is go to Malachi, chapter 1, for yourself, see for yourself. It's, I mean, that's written like 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau died couldn't possibly be talking about them. Just like this couldn't possibly be talking about Rachel, literally, in the original context in Jeremiah 31 or in this context. Okay. Now, later on in verse 20, we see God's, uh telling uh, Joseph to go back to Israel through a dream. He sure is speaking to Joseph with lots of dreams, did not he? Sure is. Must have been a famine of the word of God and of true prophets and true preachers in those days. And then notice in verse 22 that, that God gives more direction through a dream, and this time it's more specific than go to the land of Israel, like it was in verse 20. Now why do you think God did this? Why didn't God give him this specific instructions from the very beginning? Why did he say just go to Israel at first, and then later on told him not to go to the certain location? Didn't God know that Archelaus was reigning over Judea and that he was just as wicked and insane and this as much of a maniac as his father was? Of course God knew that. Of course he did. But sometimes God reveals what he wants us to do in the future step by step. Because if he reveals too much at once, we may move too quickly or do things he doesn't want us to do along the way. Sometimes Christians are so much of a rush to do God's will for them and they're in the future that they miss out on what God wants to do to them right here, right now. He must walk by faith each and every day. You must walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Yes, we must plan for the future, but not so much that we miss out on what God is doing around us and what God wants to do through us right now. One example I can give of this is is, uh, when a young Christian man or or young Christian woman wants to get married really badly. They begin to become focused on this. They get focused on, I want to get married, I have to get married. And the whole idea of getting married just consumes them. They forget about reading the Bible. They forget about evangelizing the law. They forget about intimate fellowship with other Christians. Everyone is seen as a prospect or not a prospect. This happens to Christians a lot. They forget about discipling the Christians who are younger in the faith in them. They just keep praying that the one, and, and thinking about the one, and whether this person or that person may be the one or not. Well, maybe it's just not the right timing. Maybe that's it. Maybe God wants to grow them some more and the person that they have prepared for them. He wants to grow them some more first. God will reveal the right person at the right time. He's never early. He's never late. He's always right on time. And he knows what he's doing. I mean, think about it for a second. It's about 7 billion people in the world, right? About 7 billion people now. It's a lot of people. If you give a really popular person knows a lot of people, maybe he knows 10,000 people. That's a lot of people. What what is that compared to 7 billion? And if he knows all these 10,000 people, the best he could possibly know them, and they all know him, the best they could possibly know him, could there possibly be someone outside his sphere of influence with 10,000 people who are better for him than the 10,000 he knows? Of course. And since God knows you, better than you know yourself, and knows each and every person in the world better than they know themselves, or better than you're ever going to know them, who's the best matchmaker for people? He sure is. He knows what he's doing. I'll just go to the show. We need to align our clock with his clock. And uh, so many people, they, they, they let the alarm clock of this go off too early. We need align our clock with God. So we don't need to be, and when we do this, we won't, be patient, we won't be impatient, we won't be anxious. We align our clock with God, and we won't move faster than he wants us to move. And then in verse 23, it says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, we don't have any direct quotation of he shall be called a Nazarene anywhere in the Old Testament by any of the Old Testament prophets. And notice that it says prophets, plural, and not prophet. That means that multiple prophets must have said this phrase that's in quotations. And and Matthew is most likely referring to prophecies that were spoken, well-known verbal prophecies that were spoken that Jewish people knew about, but just were never written down. That's really the only solid conclusion I could come to. There's people have said other things. That written some commentators on this, but I don't, I don't think any of their proposals hold any water personally. Uh, another thing I've, of note regarding Nazareth is that something Nathaniel said in, in John one forty six. Philip was all excited, came to Nathaniel, telling him about the Messiah. We found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, and then and then Nathaniel says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why would Nathaniel say that? It's kind of rude. Can't anything good come out of reading? Yeah. You know? That's basically what he says. It's an insult to the people of Nazareth and the town of Nazareth. Uh, why would Nazareth be so looked down upon by Nathaniel? Well, Nazareth is not a very well-known town. It's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned by Josephus, the first century Jewish historian. It's a small town that is located about 55 miles north of Jerusalem. Okay? It was a town where, which housed the Roman garrison of soldiers for the northern regions of Galilee. So this was a very hated town by Jews, because they didn't want anybody controlling them. They wanted to be their own nation. They wanted their own king. But that's where a Roman garrison was held. So if, if you lived there, you were, you were held in contempt by other Jews. Jewish people wanted nothing to do with this city. And um, you were thought of as a compromiser if you lived in Nazareth as a Jew. So you are thought of as a compromiser. Uh, The same contempt that a Jew held toward a tax collector. We talked about that. Remember that? The same kind of contempt they held towards someone who was from Nazareth. Okay? And doesn't this term of contempt, being a Nazarene, doesn't it go along well with Jesus' human life thus far? I mean, think about what he's gone through. Just, I mean, he's probably like three years old now. Okay, think about everything he's gone through up to three. No room for Jesus to the end when he was born. Did any of the Jews realize he was coming? Some shepherds out in the field announced his coming, and then some Gentiles came over to give him gifts. That's got to be insulting to the Jews that the Messiah came, and most of them didn't even know about. there were some shepherds out in the field. There was no room for him in Israel, so he went to Egypt. There's no room for him in Bethlehem. So he went to Nazareth. So he had to go live in a town that was despised by Jews. The Messiah was rejected and hated from the beginning of his earthly life until the very end of his earthly life. Just like he says in John 7, 7. The world hates him. Not just for any reason, though, no, because he testifies that his works are evil. You know, in Old Testament, there's a passage, there's a chapter in Scripture, Isaiah 53, that speaks just about Jesus here. And listen to what verse 3 says he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid him we hid as it were our faces from him he was despised and we did not esteem him that's the savior's life Matthew 10 22 to 26 says this and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in this city flee to another for surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. That's the life of the Savior. That's the life Matthew 10, verse 22 through 26. That's the life of his servants. That's the life of his students. John 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus? Gird yourselves count the cost, you will suffer persecution. What does the world think of you? Does the world hate you? Or does the world love you? If the world loves you, is a sure sign that you're of the world. Just like Jesus said. Of course, I'm not saying by any means that we should go out into the world and try to get them to hate us intentionally. Or do unbiblical things for them to hate us. But it's, obviously from, it's obvious from these scriptures and more that if we are living properly, the world will hate us. We should expect it. We should prepare ourselves for it. Now, does this mean that everyone who claims to be a Christian and the world hates is doing things the right way? I mean, is it a sure sign that you're doing things right if the world hates you? No. The world can hate you for other things, too. Like for being, just being downright mean. Are being ignorant of things. Uh, one example I give is Westboro Baptist Church. Well, they're not doing God's will. But the world hates them. Let me read you one passage from 1 Peter 3. And I think Peter kind of broke this down for us here when I'm trying to communicate with this. The world hates you. It doesn't mean necessarily doing things right. 1 Peter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope is in you, with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good, rather than for doing evil. If someone defames you or as an evildoer, it better be a lie. It better not be the truth. Oh, you're not suffering for righteousness sake, you're suffering for wickedness sake. And who wants to suffer for that? But if we have a, a good conscience when they defame famous as evildoers, that they're lying about us. They're not telling the truth about us. But if they are telling the truth about you, when they're angry at you and hateful towards you, something needs to be adjusted. Something needs to be changed. Get back to a good conscience. Yet, if the world doesn't hate you, if you haven't undergone any persecution for the name of Jesus, you need to check yourself. You need to check yourself. Lord guarantees. Jesus guarantees it. Paul guarantees it. Peter guarantees it. Check yourself to see if you're living the biblical life as you should, or whether you're compromising because you fear man more than you fear God. That's it for this week. Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin in Matthew three, in the life of one of my favorite preachers, John the Baptist. All right, does anyone have any questions? Yes. What is Westbrook Baptist Church? <laughs> sure. Westboro Baptist Church, the church, uh it's a family up in Illinois. I think they're the only people who go to church with this family. Uh, the Phelps family. Fred, they're the only people in the church? I think so. I think maybe a couple of people who are outside their family. Fred Phelps, uh, his family are there. You might know them by websites like godhatesfags.com and godhatesamerica.com and they stand out in front of military funerals and protest. Okay, yeah, so they represent Christ improperly. Are they Calvinists? They sure are. They're consistent Calvinists. Yes, they're, they're what every Calvinist should become if they're consistent, in my opinion. So, But they're one example of people who are hated by the world. Um, but the wrong reason. for the wrong reasons. They're not hated for Jesus' name or for righteousness' sake, now, for no reason. I've also heard this teaching, uh, not, and I think I've discussed this with you before. God hates sin, but he also hates the sinner. Is that a Calvinist view? Uh, well, yeah, but they would give a different definition to the word hate than I would. I, I believe the Bible says God hates sinners. But in a different sense, he doesn't hate them unconditionally. He doesn't hate like hate them in the sense that wants to worship for them. Uh, he despises the way they're living. And if they continue to live it that way, he will send them to hell, and he'll cast them into hell. But to hate someone, most people may think the word hate, they think, well, this person wants the worst for me. God doesn't want the worst for any sinner. He wants all to come to repentance. Now, if God doesn't want all to come to repentance, and he predestined eternity past, that most will go to hell, then he must unconditionally hate them, in the sense that he wants the worst for them, which is hell. And they have no choice in the matter. God is doing this. He's ordaining it, decreeing it, or predestining or determining it. So, yeah, from the Calvinist sense of view, you have to believe that God literally wants the worst for most people around the world because He's predestined them to go to hell. But I believe when God speaks, of, when the Bible speaks of God's hatred, it's talking about His extreme displeasure with the sinner, not just His sin, but the sinner himself. The sinner continues to rebellion, even though that's conditional. It's conditional upon their sinning. If they choose to stop, to repent of their sin, trust in Christ and follow Him, God's hatred is gone for them. God has a special love for those who are following Him and obeying Him. Let me just read to you what, what Jesus says in John 14 real quick. I think it really applies to this. Jesus having this special kind of love for those who are, who are His. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. And in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So you see, there's a special kind of love God has for his spiritual children. He has a benevolent love for all of mankind, even the sinners, because... While we are yet sinners, God demonstrates love for us by sending Christ to die on the cross for us. For God's love the world, the whole cosmos. He sent His only begotten Son. So God is, is wanting the best for them. He wants them to be saved. He offers Christ's sacrifice and atonement the for their sins in a way of forgiveness. But they must choose for themselves. He leaves the choice with them. So we, I, I think people oftentimes misunderstand what love and hate means. The world usually defines love as a feeling. A hug, a kiss. That's love, or lust is love in the world's view. eye uh, view. But love is wanting the greatest good for somebody. And hate, from God's point of view, is having extreme displeasure for the sinner in the way he's living his life. So when you tell a sinner in the open air, God loves you, they think, well, God has good feelings towards me. And then you tell him, God hates you, as the Bible said, they think, well, God wants the worst for me. They got it backwards. God wants the best for you. That's how he loves you. But God has extreme displeasure with you being a homosexual, with you being a fornicator and a drunkard. And he wants you to stop it immediately. Are there other questions, comments, Objections?